Welcome back. Today we have episode seven and a special guest, President Wiener. He's the president of Assumption University. We got Spencer back on this one too. Let's go. So right. President Wiener, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Uh, Appreciate it. And, and Spencer, Spencer hasn't been on in a few episodes. I'm back. Right? Finally, so yeah. where, you, where you been, Spencer? Playing baseball, actually. Yeah. That's a good, yeah. good excuse. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, we didn't want to postpone episodes, and, and I was preparing for them, and Spencer was busy with baseball. So Appreciate we had the interview with Professor McGrath and then the interview with Professor Coleman. Mm. Uh, great conversations. Interviewing Professor McGrath was my first interview, and it was kind of weird. Now, this is our first interview. Yeah, but it is. It's, Are you your know, first one together? Right, yes. right. But it is, you know, it's more of a conversation, and, and we're comfortable yeah. in those environments. So uh, how's everything going for you, President Wiener? You just said that you didn't make it to the seniors versus faculty kickball game. Are you upset about that? I'm outraged. Okay. Dave, I'm Good. outraged. No, I, 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 had, I had planned on stopping by, and I, <laughs> and I, I couldn't and probably would have uh, no injured myself in yeah, some embarrassing go. way if I had shown up. So. Good, good. Um, so, yeah, we got some uh, involvement from students. Uh, some of my friends who knew we were recording this episode with you, they, they wanted to ask a, a few very, questions. A very popular guy, as it seems. Uh, yeah. yeah. Spencer, do you okay. want to ask the first one? Oh, uh, sure, yeah. Um, one of the first questions we got was um, – they asked about your um, motivation to actually become president, um, and we wanted to ask you, with your with your you know long time involvement at the school, um, did you actually want to become president? Was that something you actively um, engaged in? And and I know obviously it's where you ended up, but yeah, uh, it wasn't a career aspiration. I enjoy I enjoy doing it, and I think it's very important work. I, I certainly didn't come here with the intention of of um, entering administration at at. Uh, uh, at any level, uh, we we were at a crucial moment in the life of the institution and the um, the the nature of the education that we offer, which I think is really important. And uh, so I've enjoyed that very much. It's it's um, you know there there are ups and downs as there are in any job, yeah. but it's but it's always very meaningful work. That, that's very cool, though. It seems like there was a void, and you know they kind of waited for people and interviewed people and reached out to other people, but. I'm assuming you stepped up to some degree and said, I am willing to do this and take on more responsibility. Well, when I was I was provost in uh, since uh, f uh, June, I think, or summer of, of 2019. Right. And when this transition began, I was asked to step in as uh, interim, which I was um, uh, very happy to do. Mm -hmm. and, and then the, the um, a search committee was formed and, and a search firm was hired and things went from yeah. there. Yeah, okay, well. Excellent. That's that's good. Uh, a second question. I think this one's great. Um, the question is, how does your background as a political scientist help slash affect your position as president? So there are really two questions there cool. because I have a professional background in politics before okay. um, before academia. Um, I was a uh, mostly a press secretary and a communications consultant for political figures and then and then corporate ones. Cool. And I do think that is very valuable in terms of um, knowing how to say things and or, or taking care to say things in ways that people can can hear and that are persuasive. Uh, I, I, I think it honed my uh, listening skills uh, as well. Um, the, the ability to see common ground where it's, mm -hmm. where it's not obviously there where they're, where they're, they're, where your sort of first inclination is to see a, a dispute. Uh, so I think all that from my political career uh, helped a lot. 
one thing that was missing for me in my political career, or what I should it's not something that was missing, but something I, I sort of discovered along the way, uh, and I, I've told this story a hundred times, so you guys have probably heard it at least 90, but um, right. I, I majored in government in uh, as an undergrad, and I thought I wanted to go to work for uh, the, for uh, the government, and somebody said, well, I should think about the Foreign Service, and there was this class uh, being offered uh, called Communism in Eastern Europe. So. Uh, I took the class. It was taught uh, by a Polish constitutional lawyer who used to say uh, uh, jokingly that what he really liked about teaching that class was you never had to update your syllabus because nothing ever changed in, in uh, politics <laughs> yeah, of, yeah. of Eastern yeah. Europe. Cool. Well, that was the fall semester of 1989, and mm-hmm. about six weeks into the semester, the Berlin Wall fell, and it, quite suddenly, <laughs> yeah. it, 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 quite sudden uh-huh. onrush of events. And I still have the book from that class. Uh, and I, I've always made it a habit when I'm teaching of showing that on the first day of class because overnight everything became irrelevant. Overnight, mm. there's, there's nothing in that uh, uh, in that book uh, mattered anymore. That's, that's not to say that, that uh, technical information doesn't matter. It matters a lot. But what was interesting to me when I interesting to me when I was working in politics, uh, and for uh, several about seven years I worked in the United States Senate. And I went back and looked at the Federalist Papers, and there are, there's a brace of essays on the Senate, and those right. hold up pretty well. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I think one of the things my political career taught me, which has, has bridged uh, with my work as a political scientist, is the, the idea that, that uh, the fundamentals, the enduring ideas, are what stick. Mm-hmm. And they have to, uh, in order to make the specific, the more concrete, and disciplinary specific things that you're learning uh, 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 durable, yeah. they, they have to be grounded on, on ideas because ideas are what last in a lifetime of change. I think um, that's excellent insight. I think a lot of times um, when I talk to other students about um, political science classes, politics classes, um, a lot of people have the misconception that um, they're either teaching or learning about just simple party politics. And I think the idea that those core principles are what you know, we build foundations off of, and you know, they remain. You're right; they remain so durable throughout um, so much of our history. That is lost on people. So I think that's yeah, that's excellent mm-hmm. insight. Well, I think there's something very unique about our our political science department, and mm-hmm. that is its theoretical grounding. Right. So uh, every topic is uh, taught from the perspective of of uh, the theoretical, the, the enduring ideas. So. When I taught American government, we started with uh, the, the Federalist Papers, for example. When uh, we teach uh, what would at other institutions be called international relations, you're going to read Thucydides. And uh, that it's a very unique, a true, I think a true political education mm-hmm. and one that's going to uh, stick with you through so, while things change. Yeah, so I have, a, I have a handful of questions. The first one is um, we were learning about Rousseau in our philosophy class, and he's very theoretical. And you explained Machiavelli to me a little bit. I don't know much about Machiavelli. Wait, wait, what Rousseau are you reading? Um, basic political reading, so or the two discourses, yeah, discourses. two discourses, the social yeah. contract as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but you explained that wasn't Machiavelli more kind of realistic, not a, a theorist, and you learned that in Dobsky's. Oh uh, yeah, Professor Dobsky's class, which was um, introduction to political science, or I'm sorry, political philosophy rather. Um, excellent class. I learned yeah. a lot. Very enriching. Um, yeah, we did read Machiavelli, and he uh, one of his defining characteristics is that yeah he wasn't so much focused on the theoretical, like imagined principalities and and ideas, and rather the effectual truth. Um, yeah, that's that is interesting. I think 
I wonder how that ties into how we teach and understand politics now. Well, I, so my, my field is the political thought of the American founding, and there's, there's a, kind of a cottage industry of what philosophers influenced whom, and there, there's, a, there's a reading of the American founding that says the Republican tradition that dates to the smaller Republican tradition, civic Republican tradition that dates to, to largely to Machiavelli. Sure. Uh, was influential. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure mm-hmm. I, I yeah. buy that, but, yeah. uh, but but there's certainly a, a profound the difference between... The contemporary Republican like, party? Uh, no, no, just, this that? would be like civic Republicanism on okay. the public, concerned with the public square and, oh, okay, and, cool. and uh, so forth. I, I do think those two, uh, in particular, present quite a contrast in terms of... Rousseau, to my reading, is very much an idealist. It's it's useful to read ideals, but you yep. you, you read the um, the second discourse, for example, and you wonder, did this guy have kids? If he thinks yeah, that, right. that we're right. we're all uh, behave perfectly in our in our natural state, exactly. Uh, and and Machiavelli, I think, um, uh, in some ways satisfying, in some ways unsatisfying, challenges uh, his readers to think. Um, not sure if realism has a sort of specific meaning in political science, but but more more pragmatically, mm-hmm. be fair. Right. Yeah. So, when you're explaining the the your background in politics, the the thing that I guess I didn't quite understand what it didn't teach you was it that it didn't teach you that things, uh, whereas philosophy might explain broader ideas that can that you can apply to different situations, political science. Uh, gives you specific ideas for specific situations? And I would say the kind of undergraduate political science education that I had, okay. which was at a large state school, yep. a very, very different place from, a, okay. uh, from Assumption, was, I would say, more focused, not entirely, but, but more focused on sort of how-to, public policy, how do you analyze gotcha. uh, things. We, we, we teach all that here, and it's very, it's very important. It, what I think was missing and what working in uh, national politics taught me was was that ideas are, in fact, what matter. That's, mm. that's what sticks with you. Mm. I, I want to kind of hold off on fully talking about liberal arts. I want to talk about enrollment first, but yeah. I can't help but bring up the fact that I think that my liberal arts education here has helped me be more comfortable in uncomfortable situations or um, understanding that the, the all the things with it, are in the pursuit of meaning are uncertain to a certain degree, and and that makes me think of the uncertainty that that uh, like liberal arts helps you deal with uh, through political science or, or through philosophy. Um, but yeah, do you want to talk about enrollment first, and then we'll get back into that? Yeah, for sure. I just um, wanted to bring it up. So um, yeah, to change gears a little bit um, sure. to talk about enrollment. Obviously, I think a higher enrollment is a goal for any institution, mm-hmm. um, and, and obviously it seems to be for assumption. Um, so me and Gabe had kind of discussed whether that goal for assumption, because obviously we're, we're a smaller institution, smaller mm-hmm. school, um, and we wanted to ask if a higher enrollment would necessarily benefit the school. Obviously, there's you know clear reasons for profit, appeal, um, set an example, yeah. um, and appeal to prospective students. But yeah, I just wanted to hear your um, takes yeah, on that. That's and a good question. Yeah, it's a great question. You're, you're, you're catching me on a good day because our undergraduate deposit deadline was uh, was the day before yesterday. Oh, nice. The um, it, I don't think enrollment can be a goal in and of itself. Okay. Uh, we're not a 
corporation. It's not a matter of if we sell more widgets, we, we make more money. Right. Enrollment is a goal if it is making a, the kind of education we offer available to more uh, to more people. Fair enough. Excellent. Uh, obviously, it has uh, it has significant financial uh, implications. Right. And uh, my feeling is that our facilities, as they now stand, which are beautiful and have been uh, expanded a lot in the last few years, can uh, um, hold more students than than we currently have. So I, I, I do think growth is is uh, uh, possible, and I would say imperative. Excellent. Okay. This might be a bad question, but what would be the sweet spot? Like like. 5,000 seems like too much, even 4,000, but, you know. Yeah, three, so you, uh, I mean, uh, my feeling, and I, I've said this publicly, is that a, a goal for us, an aspirational goal, should be 3,000 students between undergraduate and graduate by the time we celebrate our 125th and uh, anniversary in 2029. That's, oh, I should know that. Okay. Right. 2029. So, oh, cool. which I, I think is possible. It's a reach goal, and goals yep. should should be ambitious, but I, I think Absolutely. we can do it. Cool. Yeah, they, they, they should be ambitious. Um, we talked uh, in... We like to relate our classes to this because we think they're very helpful. Uh, I've brought up Ortega Gasset before. Uh, I don't know if you've read him, mm-hmm. but he talks about limitations and how limitations aren't necessarily bad. Um, I think another thing I've maybe taken from liberal arts is that something that transcends you and something that you're reaching for that's challenging uh, is maybe the path to meaning. Is that, would you agree with that? And, and if so, Kind of, what was maybe the first thing that brought you on that path to meeting? I'm actually uh, working on a, a book right now about politics and limits. And, oh wow! Um, <laughs> I, 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 so we, we can we can talk about that if you want to follow up on it, but I won't, I won't bore you with it prematurely. Okay. Okay. Uh, um, I think that um, I, I'm not sure I could identify any one particular moment, except for a general. Feeling, and this is a, a in some ways a very Augustinian feeling of restlessness. Hmm. Uh, the um, so I worked in uh, politics, strictly speaking, for s- s- seven or eight years, and then I went into consulting. And uh, you you know you, you start in political consulting, and then you have kids, and you realize it's it's it, 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 it you know it's a little bit tougher. Yeah. And I drifted into corporate consulting, and um, so, so with a little bit of politics, but, but primarily corporate. And I, I felt very, I felt very restless. Mm-hmm. And I started taking uh, night classes at, at Georgetown, and um, was awakened. I would say late, relatively. This is my um, early thirties, I think. So uh, you guys have a, a good ten or eleven year jump on me yeah that's, in terms of, that's what i was in just thinking man becoming, becoming curious so yeah, right. that's, that's wow um, okay interesting Do, i mean this is you know arguably happening to happening to us now and over the past year year and a half do you think you have can recall a moment or a thing that has caused you to strive towards more meaning uh absolutely i think i can kind of pinpoint it um and it's a kind of a shout out to professor stoner but um that very first philosophy class i took that introduced me to liberal arts um that we took together actually um, in the honors program, the fall of our freshman year was uh, Socrates and the Search for Truth. And, um, you know, just as an intro class, that really, really opened my eyes. Um, I had never experienced anything like that in high school. Mm. Um, and I was really able to kind of start to understand. I'd always had certain curiosities and, you know, I took some some really good history and government classes in high school, but nothing really super comprehensive or, or anything that really drilled down in anything um, a ton. So by the time I came here, and that class kickstarted it all and really made me aware of it. Yeah. What did you come here expecting to study? 
Um, that's a great question because I came here to play baseball first and foremost. Um, and not that studies were a secondhand thought or anything like that. Um, but I was just, I was kind of unsure. I had an interest in psychology, but I wasn't totally aware of the opportunities the institution presented. So like I said, you know, that, that first class really made me aware of it and really kickstarted the whole thing for me. I think there is something very unique about, um, Assumption students, and I've taught not not for a long time, but briefly at more what would by by conventional terms be considered more elite uh, Ivy League kinds of institutions. What what I was thinking as you were as you were saying that, Spencer, is that Mm -hmm. what uh, it's not unusual for me to hear seventeen year olds don't want to hear about your philosophy classes or or liberal arts or whatever else. Right. In my. uh, my answer to that is I'm a lot more worried about the 47-year-olds than I am about the 17-year-olds mm. uh, in the sense that, um, you know, by the time you're, uh, I may or may not be older than 47 at this at this moment, but, <laughs> you know, you're consumed as you should be with, with practical things. Sure, and right. um, I find that the minds of assumption students, whether they're studying philosophy or psychology or accounting or, or whatever else it might be, are really open to to wonder and discovery, mm-hmm. sure. and um, that's that's not the case in a lot of places. There are, mm-hmm. there are a lot of places where either students maybe uh, have an exclusively pragmatic focus, and there are places, frankly, where students come in thinking, "Oh, I know, I I already know everything, and I right. just need you to punch my ticket on uh, on my way to somewhere else." And I and I think there are a lot of moments here, like the one you described, and across a lot of different. Disciplines and and I think it, it says a lot about our students that you are open to receiving that moment to experiencing that that moment. Fair enough. Yeah, I would yeah. agree with that. Yeah, um, no, that was uh, that, that's insightful. Yeah. The I think that well, I mean that builds onto the the question of you brought up seventeen year olds. I know that wasn't the focus of your your idea there, but how can how can the school express the importance and value of a liberal arts education to prospective students and like market it to a certain degree? Can you market liberal arts? I think you absolutely can, and I think okay. there are uh, a couple of ways to do it. Uh, the uh, in, in in the Catholic liberal arts specifically, there are uh, there's a lot of pressure as as you both know, yeah. I'm sure, on incoming college students to know exactly what they're going to be doing right. uh, sure, yeah. uh, the day after graduation, and you're going to have loans to repay, and I, I and I get all that. Yeah. Um, what you need to be thinking about is a your first job that's important, but b your second career. Hmm. And uh, we know that, that most people now are going to have many careers, most of them in, in, in uh, fields that we don't yet know exist. Yeah. And a, a, a liberal arts education, a true liberal education, uh, I think provides both meaning and adaptability to, uh, to change. Absolutely. The, um, the Catholic nature of it, uh, I think, is centered on a view of human nature that sees uh, the individual as made in the image of God, and and this, this we, we 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 typically don't pursue this sentence all the way to the end, and therefore oriented toward using what uh, in philosophy and uh, well theology as well, but it's called logos to mm-hmm. pursue the truth, and that's reason right, embodied in right. uh, in speech, which means there is within each of us. You you got it at your your freshman year. I got it in my early thirties. Uh, th- there's a desire to be awakened, yep. uh, and um, 
so I, I, I think uh, I think the uh, the Catholic the tradition rather of Catholic liberal education is marketable in both of those senses. One is that this kind of education is a good in itself. That's what makes it uh, a liberal education. And because we treat it as a good in itself, it's very useful. Right. So you, you're, you probably didn't walk out of Socrates and the Search for Truth saying, my first job, I'm going to, I'm going to be ready to talk about the, right. the uh, Plato's Apology or, mm -hmm. or something. Right. But I bet your mind grew. I bet you had you 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 um, your appreciation for things like truth and beauty grew, and those are the the the, the most marketable skills uh, that we hear from employers that they need are the ability to think, to process information, and to communicate. Yeah. And you and and, and this uh, this type of education isn't reducible to that. Uh, in fact, I think if it were if it were reduced to that, if we were to say today you're taking a class in thinking, tomorrow you're taking a class in reading, and then you're taking a class in writing, I don't think it would be very very effective. It's mm. the comprehensive nature of it. Totally that, agree. That's very nice. I I think that I I appreciate your optimism about students wanting to be or having a desire to be awakened, but I, I almost think that more students the desire to be awakened is outweighed by the fear of the truth and. There's the problem probably in that is that they think they have the truth or there's even like another barrier before the fear of the truth. And that's that's kind of what I see. I see that at times too, yeah. Fear, fear of uh, uh, pushing yeah. ideas. Fear of, yeah, really fear exercising your ideas. Yeah. I've heard people say like, let's just not, we can't talk about this, it's political. Like we just have to not talk gotcha. about it. Well, I, I, I think discomfort is not a bad place for all of us to be. Right. Uh, I, that goes back to that Augustinian feeling of, of uh, restlessness. He describes that in the, in the garden, yeah. uh, the, 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 the quote is from the, the, the statue out in front of the Sosis building. Um, I, I, you know, I said at the inauguration that there were two virtues associated with this kind of education. One is humility, which is to say, uh, I might be wrong, or you might have some piece of the truth that that uh, that I don't have, and how do we know that's a virtue of education? Because uh, logos is not simply abstract reason; it's reason embodied in speech, mm -hmm. which means you have you have to have someone you're speaking with, mm -hmm. and and there's a need, uh, the, the, there's an interdependence there, and the second uh, virtue is courage, mm -hmm. that we need to be confident. Mm -hmm of two things. One is that uh, our own ideas can withstand rigorous debate. Yep. And the second is we need to have the courage uh, to, to say if, if a given idea can't withstand rigorous debate, then may maybe I should right. think about it. Okay, more. right. Yeah. I think um, I want to bring up one kind of specific example and idea, um, and, and a credit to my dad for this. We were, we were talking about this earlier. Um, but uh, he used the example of a place like, um, like Hampshire College um, in Western Mass. And so um, I'm not super familiar with it. I've done a little bit of reading um, on it, but I know that, in, at least in my view, my perspective, they take liberal arts education and kind of push it to the, to the fullest form um, in that idea of like self-education and enriching students as much as possible by letting them pick the curriculum and then allowing professors to support them in engaging those ideas like you had just said. Um, kind of on their own and letting them develop, and obviously that's this is a very specific and, um, you know, that's their that's their only goal as an institution. Um, but I was just wondering, do you think Assumption could ever pursue or consider a program like this, 
kind of in order to advance that cause of liberal arts education, you know, a little bit further? Because there's so much potential with professors, like you said, facilities, um, and and if students are willing and open to do this, I think there's a there's a huge possibility there. Well, we do have uh, the possibility of of um, students putting together their own programs of study, their own ma their own majors. Mm -hmm. What I do think is important and unique, and we we've just uh, modified our core curriculum now called the Foundations Program, so that it it, it is more flexible and has more uh, I think cohesiveness to it. I do think it's it, one of the distinguishing features of a, an assumption education is that every student, whether they're studying uh, political science, my field, whether they're studying social sciences, whether they're they're studying neuroscience or or, or marketing or whatever else it might be, nursing, um, is grounded deeply in these uh, in in a range of enduring ideas. My concern with the sort of choose-your-own-adventure curriculum is that it presumes that we know what we don't know. Okay. So, uh, so I would just ask you, for, for example, if you were choosing your own curriculum, would you have been in, in Professor Stoner's class? That's a great question. Yeah, no, that's... that's with my experience in high school, I... Like in retrospect, I would would hope so, but I don't. I don't know. That's a good right. question. And, and there, by, by the way, it works both ways. There are students who who come in with a deep interest in philosophy, but who yeah. would not take, uh, for example, a, a science class. Right. So um, it, 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 the um, so I think it's important to be open to receiving that. Uh, it's a challenging it, to challenging yeah. it, but also to to receiving it. Sure. Okay. Yeah. To uh, shift gears a bit. Who are your favorite political scientists or philosophers uh, that you've kind of learned about in the past? And that maybe you draw oh, some influ influence sure. from. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, one of my interests is the political thought of uh, people who are actually active in politics. Mm -hmm. And the, 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 um, the philosopher statesman, uh, I think it's a... It's a it's not quite the right phrase, but the sort of scholar statesman might be a better way mm. to put it, has a long tradition in, in the United States, going back yeah. to yeah. Um, you know, Ben Franklin and, um, and uh, Madison, who I, I wrote a book about, I think is, uh, and it, it was an exemplar of that, certainly not a, certainly not a perfect man, and many, many people would say not a great president, but a, but a very important thinker. Lincoln, I, I would say, uh, is a wonderful example of a completely self-educated uh, person who sure. I, I don't know that we've had a, a more profound thinker as as uh, yeah. president of the of the United States. Uh, I also wrote a book on a guy named Pat Moynihan, and Moynihan was a senator from New York. He had a this is what he's most known for. He had a, a variety of positions in government. Uh, he. Um, had a PhD from Tufts University, and was, I think, really the model um, of th of the scholar statesman in the, in the sense that um, he w he was deeply committed New Deal liberal, but also willing to challenge um, challenge his party on on nice. what seemed like uh, what seemed like orthodoxies. Cool. Let yeah, me. Uh, let me I'm sorry, I got to throw one more. Please do. Yeah. Edmund Burke. Who uh, was uh, a uh, Anglo-Irish statesman in the, the late 18th century? Uh, would would very much resist being called a philosopher because he thought philosophical politics were were uh, problematic in a in a lot of ways. 
but a very deep thinker about prudence, which I think is really the essential political uh, virtue, the, the ability to, to say, uh, here are my principles over here, and here's this really messy world over here. Yeah. How do I get the two? So, and, and I don't, we don't need to talk about specific and political that, ideology, yeah. but when I see our current state of politics, I don't see that that idea yeah. of prudence. I mean, I don't even, I didn't, I didn't even think that that's part of government, like our government, because in the past five, six years, it didn't really seem like it was. And, and it and it's almost seems like the government is trying to say, hey, everything's okay, like everything's okay, when it's not, the world's not. I mean, we know that. So what would you say to that? I would say that one problem for prudence, and the same even, I would say even more so for moderation in politics, is the inability of moderation to make, a, it's not an inability, but it, it, uh, the failure of moderation to make a case for itself. Okay. Which is to say, uh, there seems to be something admirable if you're all the way on the left and you're all the way on the right and I'm somewhere in the middle trying to figure yeah. out uh, uh, what's true or what's best. That there's something that seems reasonable yeah. about that. But it's but, but uh, if on the other hand you're which one did I I forget which one of you I assigned which one. I'm the left. You're the far left. You're the far yeah. right. Yeah. You can make a really rousing speech. That says this is the way it is. The yeah. the country's going great, or it's going down the drain, or, yeah. or whatever it might be. And and th there is. I, I wrote an article about this about a, a year ago. Uh, there is a moral case for moderation, and it's grounded in humility, Absolutely. which is to say, right. I'm not as certain of everything yeah. as, you, as you guys are. Right. Yeah, that's what right. I found more now, like studying and, and gaining. I think some humility that I think I have a political idea. And then I actually do research into it, and I'm like, well, I yeah, don't know. Yeah, you check it back, yeah. Well, like, what? I don't know. And it's a byproduct think about of this. our yeah. liberal arts education. It really well, is, and, yeah. I, I, and I think there's a challenge there, which, yeah. which both Burke and Lincoln embodied, Moynihan too, in a lot of ways, which is when you're acting in politics or really anywhere in life, you cannot simply be uncertain. So, uh, the, the, I mean, I think there's an important role that, that uh, Catholic liberal education plays in unsettling Right, uh, your ideas, but you also know that that when you have to make a moral decision or yeah. or a, a political decision, or whatever else, you have to decide, you have right? To and do you have something, to, it, yeah. and it's you're not going to be able to pull out a calculator and say, mm -hmm. well, this is two plus two, so the answer must be right. four. The world, the world yeah. is is a lot murkier than that. I, I, it's brings me back to freshman year, fall semester. There was this talk, and I think it was you, Professor McGrath, and maybe two others. It was in Testa. I think it was you, because I think you, I I raised my hand and I asked a question, and I asked something like. As I'm trying to understand uh, that things are uncertain, or like as I'm trying to question myself, I'm like less confident in my ideas or something. And I think it's interesting that I kind of asked that question last year, uh, and it hasn't really changed. But you, you, you remind well, me. Well, you, you, so I, I I think humility is not the worst virtue in learning, yeah. particularly, but also in in politics. But if you take someone, uh, a, a, a political figure like Lincoln who was willing to examine his own ideas and willing to listen to other people's ideas. He also had to make decisions hundreds yep. of times a day. And, uh, the, the, and there's, a, there's um, the, the confidence to do that even while you are r remaining open to a, a sort of intellectual and moral humility, I think is a very rare combination. Right. Hmm. Interesting, okay. We can, uh, yeah, I mean, we got a little more time here. We'll. I guess we can we can go into I want to ask a few questions about Pup Cup. So 
uh, it's funny because my, my dad, who, who went here, of course, graduated, I think, oh, I don't want to say the year, maybe 89, I don't know. But he, uh, him and his friends, there was a Pop Cup event, which was, and you're going to find this to be crazy. You might know about this. There was a Pop Cup event where uh, a bunch of limos came and picked up students, like seniors. Like So each group was assigned a limo, and there's a scavenger hunt. Uh, I don't know if it was sanctioned by the school, but it must have been just because they had all the limos. And they went around and did like this did crazy scavenger this. Yeah. hunt. Uh, yeah. I, I, that one I haven't heard. You haven't heard that? Yeah. Well, we got to bring that back. So <laughs> I'll, I'll look into it. Okay, good. Yeah, look into it. Well, I can too. We can work <laughs> together on it. Uh, but yeah, of course, you know, keg is in the limo is when you're 22 is legal. And I think, actually, is it legal? Yeah. Limo kegs. Yeah, I got another question there. <laughs> <laughs> So, okay, yeah, would Assumption ever not sanction the Pop Cup, or would it always be well, I, I, I think it's an important tradition. I, I, mm-hmm. I, I suppose I'm sure anybody could imagine scenarios where we would or wouldn't make a given decision, but mm-hmm. I, I think those traditions are great, and my experience of uh, students is, is that when you treat them like adults, they act like adults. Right. A couple people get, uh, you yeah. know, rowdy and, and yeah. make bad decisions, and I know plenty of adults who get rowdy and make right. bad decisions. Fair but, Last spring and this spring, uh, my wife and I went down to the valley just to hang out a bit. And yeah, students are they were having fun, but, sure. but being being reasonable. Yeah. I, mean, I think that's what we should expect of one another. Is, would there ever be a way that uh, freshmen and sophomores could also go to Pup Cup, even although there is alcohol present? Um, there, I guess, have to be some changes. Would that? Do you think that'd be possible? I I, I don't know what our exact rules are. I know we okay. were. Um, I know we were checking IDs and there were wristbands for if you lived in the Valley and were, t- were 21. Uh, I can tell you our vision for the, the pub that, that we're, um, we're hoping to build is that it would be accessible to all students, but, but obviously with, with, with uh, appropriate control of, sure. uh, of the alcohol. That's yep. right. Yeah. I think that's a big idea that almost not a lot of students know about. I think that's a really great opportunity to bring some life to the center campus and well there's a there's a graduating senior named patrick sedgwick who has championed this since since last year he was uh he's currently senate speaker i can't Mm -hmm. remember what he was last year but he put a committee together and right after i I think my first meeting with student leaders after i became interim president he said well i've got this this business plan for a pub and and i'll work on it over the summer and send it to you i said no you'd send it to me this afternoon and he did, and it was, uh, you know, it was, uh, I think, a well-developed, well-thought-out proposal. Uh, it did have one location proposed. It, it, it identified a series of uh, potential locations, and my yeah. favorite one, I can't remember which building, but w- w- he listed be- upsides and downsides. That's right. And, and one of them was near the chapel, and he says, good for confession. <laughs> so... Uh, anyway, funny, it, so yeah, good uh, stuff. Patrick has been a tireless champion of this, as yeah, has great, Molly great. Tempesta, the SGA president, great. and the other SGA officers. It, we've been working on it for a year, and and probably need to update the the community more. Sure, there have been, you know, the licensing process always takes a little bit longer than you okay. expected, and and we were looking at. Um, some dining options that may have affected it and, and so forth. Gotcha. Right, and another question uh, regarding dining. Is Taze getting moved? Uh, I, not not in the near term. It, okay. we, we, did, we did spend uh, a lot of the last year looking at it, mm-hmm. uh, at whether dining would make sense in Hagen. Uh, 
the the problem is I, I, what was interesting about it to me was the student the, the way the center of campus has shifted from let's say when your when your dad was here or your, for, for that matter even when I started yeah. teaching here um, Taylor is kind of an outlying facility for yeah, a lot of right. students so what happens is at any given moment uh, you know some students are in Taylor and some are in at Charlie's and it, it never and you miss out on the the, the liveliness. Hmm. Uh, the, the challenge we're facing, and we are, we are looking at some Im- improvements to, we've, we've made some already this semester and are looking to some other improvements for Taylor, but Hagen wasn't built for that purpose. Right. So huh. taking uh, a building that exists for this purpose and causing it to serve another purpose right. uh, unleashes all kinds of logistics, yeah. whether it's construction yeah. or where do you move this office, and right. if uh, you move this office there, that office has to go somewhere else. And and it's like, do, you, so do we need to do that kind of thing? And right. it's obviously costly. And, yeah. and then what do you do well, with Well, and, and one thing that was really important to students, which yeah. I appreciate, and in fact, alumni on the board mentioned this to me, too, from their own memories, is how important that space is where the, the student club offices are. Yeah. Right. And uh, we, didn't, we didn't want yeah. to lose that. Yeah. yeah. Cool. And Hagen's like there are people out there all oh, the time, yeah. absolutely there all the time. Absolutely, um, I'd say that's the true center of campus. Obviously, you know, given that it's the offices of so many important things. But um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and if you want to maybe start to up. wrap up a little yeah, bit. Yeah, no. Um, uh, yeah. You want to ask the questions, sir? Yeah, I think our our Did last you save the hard questions for the. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, we're gonna dive into uh, Rousseau and then kind of how he. Okay. Uh, I'm, ready. <laughs> I'm ready. Bring it up. <laughs> um, I guess our, our last real real deal question um, to kind of end on a on an optimistic note is um, we wanted to ask what are your short term maybe like year two year goals for your time as president what would you want to improve I think a precondition for all the other things we want to do is uh, growing enrollment we've mm-hmm. had some tremendous success this year already in that uh, in that area uh, I I think uh, let me say two things one is I want our students, I want us all to remember that students don't have to be here. Right. Now, that doesn't mean you're customers and we're service providers, so if you don't like the, the B you got, I'm not going to ask you what you got in Professor Stoner's class or Professor <laughs> McGrath's class, but if you, if you don't like the B, well, then you say, I'm, I'm withholding my tuition until you give me an A. It's not a consumer relationship. <laughs> but it is very important, I think, both to your, your overall educational experience and to your ability to learn in the classroom, that this be a joyous uh, right. time in your, in your life, a time of challenge, a time of fun, of, of uh, exploring new things. Right. So I think listening to students is, is very important. And the last thing I would say is we want to position the institution, which is where I think Assumption's heart is, is the kind of place that doesn't make you choose between being ready for a career and having a meaningful life that's, gotcha. that's awakened to, to wonder and curiosity. Mm-hmm. And that's a hard thing. You, your your yeah. branding question earlier got at this. That's a hard right. thing to bottle. Right. But, right. But and a hard it, thing to uh, even be done. explore. Because they're not mutually exclusive. They, they, they are not. And a lot, I think a lot of institutions, yeah. um, the, the, with the career pressure that I mentioned earlier, institutions have tended, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, painting with a broad brush, but they've tended to say we're going to go all the way in, in the direction of career preparation. Mm-hmm. And the problem with that is that the technology you learned is probably obsolete before you get off the stage at commencement. That's a good point. And, it, and the same is true, I say technology, but it would have been true of the political systems of Eastern Europe or, yeah, or sure. whatever else. And the other way institutions have gone is to say we're going to retreat to the mountaintop and we're going to think great thoughts that are completely disconnected uh, 
uh, from the world. And I, and I don't think you have to pick between uh, being ready for, for meaningful engagement in the world, whether it's in your profession, whether it's, as Professor Dobsky says, the one job everybody knows they're going to have, which is being a citizen. Right. Uh, whether, whether it's a sense of personal meaning, you, the, the, the kind of education we, we provide, and, and I think Catholic liberal education at, at its best can provide both. Yeah, that's, a, that's good. The, uh, I saw this kind of, I think it was a study, I don't know if it'd be considered a study, but Dell Technologies and this company, uh, Institute for the Future or something, they, they released, a, they estimated that 85% of the jobs in 2030 have not been created yet, which I think is right. crazy, like totally reflects on the point that liberal arts is huge. Yeah. Um, well, we, yeah. we have a trustee who's an, an alum. I, I won't say who he is or where he works, but a very senior, um, successful executive in the financial industry. And, mm-hmm. and one of the things he told me once is when he looks around his office, the, the, the people crunching the data and other things that are, that are beyond my understanding are, have to be very technically Educated, and we, we do that by the way. I mean, our finance major, for example, sure, that's sure, important. Sure. So when he looks around at who's who's generating the ideas, who's managing those people, who's 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 uh, you know who's running the place, mm. he, his colleagues are a classics major, a uh, they're, they're from the liberal arts. Yeah, that's yeah. cool. Uh, not exclusively, but but right. they've they, they, they've um, they've been formed. Their their <laughs> intellects and their their. Uh, their souls, I think, have been formed in a way that, that uh, they wouldn't be in a lot of other places. It makes them ready to be great employees, great employers, and contribute, yeah. Well, as I said at the inauguration, I think the most important thing employers need to sh- know about Assumption students is they will show up on the first mm-hmm. day and do the jobs with integrity and with agility mm-hmm. and with enthusiasm. And that is something a lot of employers are telling us is not a common thing. Yeah, it's, uh, it seems like you've I'd say you've achieved humility because we, we asked you this question and you talked about what your goals are for the students and, and the school in general, but what is your goal for yourself? Or And you could also explain what you think you've already learned, but what's your goal? In terms of learning from the job? You uh, may, yeah, maybe just the involvement of your job in your life and how it will impact your life. Well, I um, if my family is watching, I would like to, uh, whether they are or not, I, I, I would like to work on work-life balance. Um, I, I'm not the best uh, exemplar of that. Um, I think it, it's hard for me in some ways to separate that question because this is, the success of this institution is very personal to right, me. Fair I, enough. I, I, it's, um, That's great to hear. Uh, this, this is yeah. not, uh, th- this is a place I came to teach. Uh, first of all, because it, it, it did have a reputation as a, as a, a unique and, and high quality political science department, but also because they were hiring it. It's not easy to get faculty jobs, but yeah. I very quickly fell in love with the mission of the yeah. uh, of the institution. So that, that that success is very important to me too. But wow. but if I can if I can do that well, sure. balancing uh, be, being uh, a little more attentive to other responsibilities, that would that would be a good thing. Yeah, cool. it, it it shows your commitment. And then you spoke about the book you're writing on limitations. Would you say that your role as president is a limitation for you in terms of writing? Um, in terms of the idea that, that kind of we touched on before, that limitations are possibly good, if we did touch on that. Sure. So, so th- there's a practical limitation, which is that I don't, you know, I used to write um, a lot of op-eds and, and mm-hmm. articles and, and uh, spent a lot of time on, on, uh, on scholarship. And, um, you know, I just don't have the same 
brain space. Mm-hmm. In, the, in the classroom, by the way, your prof- I think all your professors would tell you this, the classroom is where ideas get developed. We yeah, learn yeah. from you as much as you learn from us. Interesting. So that's a little bit harder. I, I, the, the, the thesis of the book, though, is that, and I think this goes back to our, in some ways to our Catholic identity, is that accepting the limitations on our horizons, and it, mm. um, the, the book goes into uh, the idea that, that the principles, both on the right and on the left, on which contemporary politics is based, are illimitable. Mm. And that right. creates, a, right. that creates yep. a serious stalemate. Because if what I'm looking for is, for example, nostalgia and a return to the, you know, some romanticized vision of the past, uh, then it's 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 kind of wrong for me to compromise mm. on that because it's it's such an intrinsic good. And on, on the other side of the aisle, if what I'm looking for is progress or or however else you want to um, you want to phrase it, 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 when principles can't be limited, it becomes a um, I think it becomes toxic for politics because it makes yeah. compromise not only impo- difficult but it, but actually immoral. Oh, okay. That's a perspective I've never heard before. I appreciate that. It's, yeah. it's, you going to buy know, the book? I should now, yeah. Absolutely. I'm going to buy the book. I yeah. mean, that you, should, sounds, you should buy it twice. Gotcha. Uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> I'll send it to my, my grandma. She'll, she'll get you one, too. And then she'll tell me about how it's you know, all I have wrong. To, I'm I, just I, have to write it, I have to write it before you buy it. That's the, what was that? I have to write it before you buy it. That's the one challenge. That's that fair. A, how how close point. are you? How many more hours? Oh, yeah, I've got plenty plenty left to do. Okay, fair enough. We wish you luck. Yeah, no, uh it ties into what we're learning about. We learned that about Rousseau, his his uh, explanation of, of things regarding that, and yeah. uh, just speaks I, again. I would to say class. he's an example of an illimitable thinker, and a thinker without limits. I would totally agree. So right, but I would say that like he does that on purpose for the reader to possibly uh, understand the negative parts of of his writing that it seems unlimit like seems limitless. That's kind of what I took. I'm a I really like Rousseau, so that's why I probably took that. But he's definitely fun to read. Yeah. 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 Um, well, I think we can wrap it up there. This was yeah. a good episode. This it was our excellent. first interview with both of us, so it was kind of weird for us, but I think it you went did great. great. Thank you so appreciate much. It. All right. Thank All you. Right. Appreciate it. And yeah, it was excellent. Anytime. Yeah. Episode seven. Books. Fantastic.